Well, good morning, friends. Yes, if we have not met, my name is Charlie, Charlie Salamone, lead pastor here. And the Christmas season is upon us. We call it Advent, the coming, the, the coming of the Lord, the coming of the King. And as I was starting to think about Christmas and the Christmas season, Christmas passages and such, and I started thinking about Christmas Eve, a lot of people come to church on Christmas Eve. What am I going to talk about? Uh, I looked at some of those Christmas passages, and I came across one that I hadn't like thought about too much before. There's this time, well, we'll read it. I'll probably read it on Christmas Eve. Maybe you'll hear it before that, but there's this time when the wise men come to town, and there's this whole thing with Herod wanting to kill the child. And anyways, Herod inquires from the, uh, the scribes or the, the teachers or whoever. He says, hey, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? And they said, well, it seems like the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. And they quoted an Old Testament prophet named Micah. Who here has heard of Micah? Who here knows anything about the book of Micah? Okay, there's a couple. Last week I wouldn't have raised my hand because I didn't know anything about Micah. So I thought, you know what? Uh, I don't know anything about Micah. What's leading up to Christmas? What would happen if we dove into this book of Micah? Would that be a good idea? Still don't know, <laughs> but we're doing it. <laughs> uh, that was just a joke. I think it's a good idea. I think it's of God. I think God's with us. But if you will just come with me for a moment, I imagine myself as I was, I was laying in bed, I was drifting off to sleep. I started imagining myself wandering outside of the city to a little shack, just kind of down near the river's edge, and, you know, knock on the door, and this little, like, unassuming man opens the door, and I don't know, I kind of picture him kind of like a hobbit figure. Who knows? It's just my imagination. It doesn't matter. And I was like, are you Micah of Morsheth? And he's like, yeah, the, the prophet of Israel? Yeah, yeah, I'm one of those. Well, Micah, I have heard that you have some good news for us. I've heard that you have a Christmas, I've heard that you have a Christmas prophecy for us. Um, and he says, I do, I do. And, and I was like, Micah, um, well, could I have that? I'll just take that and I'll be on my way. And Micah says, well, hold on a second. You know, there's, there's other things that the Lord gave me also that might be of interest. And so I say, okay, okay, sir. Okay, Micah, um, I guess I have time. And he says, well, come in, um, take a seat. Let me make some coffee. And so he does that, and, uh, and then he, he opens the scroll. And so get comfortable, and we're going we're gonna to dive into this. Father God, your word is your word, and ultimately what we want is for your word to fall on our hearts with power. An encounter with you is what we desire, more than the instruction of the mind or um, more than teaching us how to live our lives, Lord. 
we need you in our hearts and we want to experience you and we want to know you. And I pray that the words of the Old Testament prophet Micah would find relevance today um, and in the coming weeks. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So Micah opens the scroll and it begins like this. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morseth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you, listen, earth and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him, and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. The mountains will melt, and the valleys will split. The mountains will melt, and the valleys will split. That imaginative, imaginative language, you know, I started with that little imagination that I had in bed, and I did that for a purpose. Because God has made us not only with minds to process facts like a computer, but also imaginations to draw us in and make things feel more real and more relevant. And well, if you're going to read the Old Testament prophets, you see a lot of that, this imaginative language, the mountains will melt and the valleys will split. I don't imagine that that's ever literally going to happen. I mean, it might. I don't know how these things are going to play out, but I think that's more just kind of figurative language that's trying to communicate something. And, well, what is it trying to communicate? Mm, well, before I answer that, uh, let me first tell you that Micah is a typical Old Testament prophet, and he has words of comfort but with those words of comfort, he says a lot of things that are more like that, uh, less comforting. And they work together. These aren't competing truths. These are truths that you hear all of them and you let them do the work and they, and they work together. And well, the, the beginning of the book is, uh, well, the Lord is coming down to bear witness against you, it says. The mountains melting and the valleys splitting, that's not out of, that's not out of comfort. That's something else. And that, before we dive into that more, that begs a bigger question just as we consider this. Micah is an Old Testament prophet. What does that mean for us? Because now we are in the time of the New Testament, right? The New Testament has come, the good news of Jesus. So what are these... Old Testament prophets and prophecies and such, how does that relate to us? Or another way of saying it would be, how do we interpret these in light of what we know about the coming of Jesus and the good news of Jesus, dying for our sins, raising from the dead? How do we interpret this in light of that? And the answer is just like that. We interpret it in light of that. We interpret it knowing what we know about Jesus, and we interpret it knowing what we know about the message that came with Jesus. 
specifically the words of the New Testament. We interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. So I'll be referring to the New Testament as we try to understand the words of Micah. Now, some people, and I, I disagree with this position, and I think you can see it pretty clearly. Some people take what I would say is kind of a radical approach, and they say the Old Testament's not really relevant because now we have Jesus in the New Testament. And we can see right in the beginning that that is not what's going on here because Micah, he actually says, hear you peoples, all of you. Listen, earth and all who live in it. So at the time, he's speaking to the people of Judah and Samaria, and you're going to see that's the immediate audience who the message is for. But even Micah knows what he has to say is for more than just Judah and Jerusalem. It's for the whole world, and you're going to see it different parts um, throughout the coming weeks. He has a message for the nations, for the world, and it, it truly is a message for all of us. Um, as we saw, I think, just two weeks ago, and I quoted a New Testament passage, 1 Corinthians 10, speaking of the Old Testament, it said, these things, these things were written down for our instructions, upon whom the ages have fallen. As in these Old Testament truths, they were written down for us, for our instruction. So we'll see that again as we process through the book of Micah. Oh, here's something I should just probably say. We do have children's programs going on right now. This isn't an R-rated message, but it might be PG-13 in some ways. And that's just how it is with some of the language of the, um, the Old Testament prophets. So I just say that uh, for parents. I don't know if kids are here. I personally would have no problem having my kids hear this, and then you just process things with them afterwards. But like I say, nothing too terrible, but... Um, let you all just make your own judgment as parents, but um, like I say, I think that most of the kids are probably already in with the, with the children's programs. But anyways, uh, we're going to interpret this in light of what we know about the New Testament, and one thing I'll say about that, the big message, the big good news is this. God is for us. He is for our life. He is for our good. He wants good for us. He wants freedom and joy and life. For God so loves the world. Things we know, things we know in Christ, God is for us. Let that be kind of the backdrop and the foundation as we hear what Micah has to say. God is for us, and everything he does, everything he says, ultimately he wants to bless us. So let's keep that in mind as we just go farther into this scroll. So as we read so far, it starts out, Micah is saying, God is coming, and he is coming to bear witness against uh, some people that he's frustrated with. And while the mountains are going to melt, the the valleys are going to split. And let's keep going. Verse 5, it says, All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. 
I'll destroy all her images since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes. As the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. Because of this, I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. It's kind of just, it's echoing and I can just kind of hear like Micah howling like a jackal and, and moaning like an owl. Um, right now he's expressing grief. What's going on? Well, he says in the beginning, um, among other things, Samaria is going to be a heap of rubble. So when I say Samaria, for people who know a little bit or even a medium amount about the Bible, you probably think of Samaritans, right? In the time of Jesus, you got the woman at the well, she's a Samaritan, you got Jesus and his story about the good Samaritans, and you got some other Samaritans that are notable. That's not actually who this is about, because at this time, the Samaritans, as they're called in the New Testament, didn't yet exist. So at this point, when he says Samaria is going to be a, a heap of rubble, so you had... You had the people of Israel, and they kind of got in a little spat with each other, and they split into two kingdoms. In the north, you had the kingdom of Israel, and in the south, you had the kingdom of Judah, the tribe of Judah. There was, there was originally 12 tribes, and in the south, the tribe of Judah, that was the big tribe. They had their capital, Jerusalem, and then you had the other tribes in the north, known as Israel, and their capital was Samaria. And, well, here's a question. Do you know why the Jews are called the Jews? A lot of people don't know this. Why are the Jews called the Jews? And the reason the Jews are called the Jews is because it's short for the tribe of Judah, the Jews of Judah. There were 12 tribes. What about the other tribes? What happened to them? Well, what happened to them was Micah's prophecy was fulfilled. Um, they were taken, and they didn't return. Um, Samaria became a heap of rubble. Actually, I saw a picture of it this week. You can, you can see um, the hills of Samaria and the ancient ruins of the ancient city that was, that was destroyed. The Assyrians came. They took the people, and the other tribes of Israel ceased to be. The only thing that was left was the tribe of Judah. Um, it's, it's rather serious if you think about it, isn't it? God called a special people out of Israel and only a remnant, only a remnant survived. Um, what are we to do with that? What does that mean for us? As we stand, as we stand as New Testament believers, how are we supposed to understand these, these, these judgments of the Old Testament? What are we supposed to do? And I, I asked myself this yesterday, actually. I mean, I was putting the sermon together all week, but yesterday I just asked myself. And this passage came to mind, and I was like, I don't know if they're going to want to hear this, but I'm going to read it anyways. This is, comes from Hebrews chapter 12. So New Testament, New Testament. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. 
For if the people did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven? So he's talking about Old Testament warnings and how the people did not escape when they were warned and they ignored it. And he says, how much more is that true for us? Some people like to say, like, the promises and the judgments of the Old Testament don't really apply because now we have Jesus. And actually what this is saying is it applies even more. It's more serious. The promises they have, our promises are better. And the warnings they had, our warnings are more serious. If they ignored the warnings and they perished, how much worse will it be? They ignored him who warned them from earth. We ignore, if we're going to ignore the one who warns us from heaven, and who is it that warns us from heaven? Let's clarify. It's the, the Holy Spirit. This is the idea. The gospel is preached by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as the scriptures say, Jesus said, when the Spirit comes, he'll speak to hearts. He'll convict hearts. He'll speak about things containing righteousness and sin and judgment. These things will be spoken to us, not by people alone, but by the Holy Spirit. Now I'm speaking. I'm a man. I'm a person. But these truths, these truths fall in our heart. Jesus would speak about this. They, they come by the message of the Holy Spirit. And this is actually why Jesus told us that there is a sin against the Holy Spirit that can never be forgiven, because it's a sin of literally rejecting God. It's rejecting his message. And what is his message doing? It's calling us to him, calling us to know him, to have true life. And that pertains to these passages later, what's going on here. Now, this is the part that I was kind of like, uh, I don't know if I want to talk about this. It's a little off color for church time. But this thing about since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, as the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. I thought, well, that's not really colorful for church, especially like Christmas time. But then I was like, well, it's really communicating something that's important for us to understand about really the nature of sin. So I have these young adults that I meet with Wednesday nights at 8.30. It's a fun group. You never know the sort of stuff that we're going to discuss. We have this whiteboard, and people can put whatever topics they want up there. And there's always questions of, like, can we do this? Can we do this? I mean, someone last week said, you know, uh, can we smoke marijuana? You know, can we do this? And by the way, I'm not getting into that right now. So, but I just mean, it's like, can we do this? Can we do this? Fair questions. And something that I always come back to and something I really want this group to understand, which I want everyone to understand, is that, sure, sure, I could come up with a list of things that we would call sin, things that are, that are pretty unhelpful, that generally are going to be things that we would call sin. If you, if, if you really need me to do it, I can come up with a list. But if that's your only understanding of good and evil is a list of, of, of good things to do and bad things to avoid, then I fear you've missed the bigger point of what sin really is. A lot of times people will ask me the question, hey, you're a pastor, you're a Christian, do you think this is a sin? And I think to myself, I can't even answer this question for you because you don't even know what sin is, okay? So I try to like, I don't, I don't always give in to those litmus tests that people often give you. And they will give them to you, by the way. If you say you're a Christian, they will often want to know, do you believe this is a sin? And anyways, well, um, what's going on? That list, those external manifestations of sin, they come from somewhere. 
They come from something that's not external. They come from something internal. And that's really the heart that sins flow, sins flow out of. And that's what's really being addressed here in this kind of strange way about she's gathered the wages of prostitutes. And let me help you understand. God in the Bible is often likening himself to that of a husband to his people, a loving husband, and at times, a jealous husband. That's something he's often likening himself to. I'm a husband, a loving husband, and at times a jealous husband. Actually, this week, I saw this old video clip of Oprah Winfrey, and she was saying how she was a little girl at church, and she was all for it and stuff, and then she heard the pastors say that God's a jealous God, and then she was like, no, 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 I don't, I don't like this. But she didn't understand because she's like, she's like, so what? Like, God is jealous of me? She's like, no, I don't like that. And it's too bad no one was there to, to explain to her, no, Oprah, actually, God isn't jealous. He's not jealous of you. He's jealous for you. As in, we were made for him to be his own. Here's a passage about marriage that's about more than just marriage. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. I am yours, and you are mine. And God says to his people, you are mine, and I am yours. Together, we're going to be one. You're going to know me as one. There's a love that brings forth oneness, experiential oneness that God has for his people and it's the love of a husband. And so we have this option, or we can look at it this way. A wife gives herself to her husband and receives love and security and, and real love. And when we're talking about a husband such of God, we're talking about security. We're talking about uh, a lot, what God would love to give his wife in love, in relationship. That's what God has as a loving husband. And if you're going to compare that to the wages of a prostitute, that's someone who would give themselves. But what would they receive is simply a payment, not the love of a husband. And so here, that is what God is saying his people has been. And the reason why this is helpful for us to understand is we can make a list of sins, but that's not really the problem. And in fact, throughout the course of history, and certainly in the time of Jesus, you had certain people who were pretty good at avoiding most of the things on the list. But on a heart level, they were very far off. On a heart level, they'd fallen guilty to this. So what this is talking about, using the term of prostitution, it's talking about what the Bible calls idolatry. And if when I say idolatry, you're just thinking about those like, you know, metal statues and carved images. Like, get that out of your mind. Yes, that applies, but it's about much more than that. What it's really about is, what do we chase after for our sense of security, identity, happiness? What's really going to make you happy that you're really going to put your focus on as your life goal? And beloved, God, who is jealous wants it to be him. And the reason he's jealous is because he's good. If you have a wife and you love her and she runs off with other people and you're not jealous, 
well, there's something wrong with your love. There's something lacking in it. But there's nothing lacking in the love of God. So yes, he's jealous. And the reason he's jealous is because what he wants to give us is long-lasting and true. And that's why the second part where it says, as the wages of prostitute, they will again be used. Um, what does that mean? We can kind of interpret that also in light of just things that Jesus said. He told the story of the rich fool, the person who spent his life chasing after other things to make him happy, to give him a sense of security. So um, he felt guilty to this very sin we're talking about. And he was pretty successful in life. He got a lot of stuff. It says he had like, he built bigger barns for all of his stuff. And finally he said, you know what? I've worked hard. Finally I can rest. I can put my feet up. I can enjoy the fruit of my labor. Everything I've worked for has now, has now arrived. And then God says to him, you fool, um, this very day your soul is required of you. And hear this, and all that you've gathered, whose will it be? Meaning it will be someone else's. And that's what is being spoken of here. The wages, the things that she gathered, they're going to be used again. She's not going to get to keep them. And that, that's the difference between what God would like to give us and everything that you might obtain even if all of your humanly speaking goals are found and achieved, even if all your dreams come true, if that dream isn't God and his kingdom, that dream is going to end. You're going to wake up. It's a temporary thing. You can't keep it. You can't hold on to it. You fool, this very day your soul is required of you and everything you've gathered, you can't keep it. But what God wants to give us, a love, a relationship, a security, an identity, Riches, riches beyond what we can compute. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Everything that God would like to give us in love. If only, if only we would turn to him and seek him and trust him. Well, they weren't at the time. And he would go to them. He would send prophets and he would call them. Come to me, come to me, come to me. And... Just as I say we had this message of Jesus and the love of Jesus, the goodness of God, they knew it also because it was their God who brought them through the Red Sea. They should have known that God was good and he was for them. But time and time again, they just thought to themselves, we can't trust him. We need to do things on our own. We need to go. We need to go and gather wages. We need to go and find our own ways to make ourselves happy. And so they did, and they wouldn't listen, and here you have Micah howling like a jackal and moaning like an owl for what is going to take place and for what did take place. So what was then left was, was only the Jews. God kept a remnant because he's still going to fulfill his promises to Abraham. So um, you get to chapter 2 of Micah, Micah's still speaking, and he says, Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes and they rob them of their inheritance. Therefore, the Lord says, I'm planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly for it will be a time of calamity. In that day, people will ridicule you. 
They will taunt you with this mournful song. We are utterly ruined. My people's possession is divided up. He takes it from me. He assigns our fields to traitors. Therefore, you will have no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by lot. So here, um, we're actually seeing some of the ways these internal sins are manifesting themselves. So the essence of sin is something that happens internally, where someone says, I can't trust God, I can't trust the word of God to truly make me happy. I need to go do things on my own. And that always, in one way or another, that always leads to failing to treat other people with love and oppression. As we're reading about here, it says, uh, talks about people, they, they, they want the fields of others and they take them. They take houses from other people. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. And there's a lot we could actually talk about what was going on there. Uh, there's a line that draw my attention. It says, they do this because it's in their power to do it. It's in their power to do it. So what that means is it's not just the people individually that is corrupt. It's the whole system that's corrupt. What they're doing, they're doing legally, but it's wrong. There is something in our hearts that longs for a political kingdom that is marked with justice. What was going on there was systematic oppression. And in this world, that's a huge part of our conversation today for good reason. God has made us with hearts that long for justice, a kingdom of justice. Sometimes in the name of politics, people do some funny things. Sometimes in the name of politics, often in the name of politics, people do bad things. But it's rooted in a good desire, something that God gave us that you just can't push away. And it's this desire for a kingdom that is truly marked with justice. And the good news that Micah's going to get into later is that God's planning on that. There will come a day where the nations cease to go to war. That day is coming uh, where the nations trade their, their, their swords for, for they, they beat them down and, and they say, we don't, we don't need these anymore. Um, a time that a king is coming and, and with a king, a kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness, it's coming. Um, and well, here, you just, you just have uh, Micah explaining something that we all feel when we look and we read the news. Um, actually, um, in the United States, uh, I, I don't know a whole lot about, I, I'm from the U.S., if you don't know, I've been here for a few years. Love it here, by the way, love it. Um, but in the U.S., you know, you learn a lot about the United States government. And the United States government was built on the principle that you just can't trust people because people corrupt. And so you have this, like, checks and balances. They, they, uh, they thought, you know what, with the right system, we can keep oppression and corruption away. And how'd that work out? You know, it's like, uh, pay attention to the news of what happens in the U.S. and, you know, corruption and oppression still finds a way. And the reason it does is... You know how I said you have that list? You got that list of bad things that you want to avoid? You can avoid all those bad things. And sin will still find a way if the heart isn't dealt with. And in the same way, you can have a government with all the right laws. 
You can, you can try to address it in the right way with checks and balances, but until the heart is dealt with, sin and oppression will find a way. But in his name, all oppression will cease. Meaning, what we long for can never be achieved with only political and social action. We need to be people for justice. We need to be people who speak for justice and fight for justice and take care of orphans and widows in their distress. We need to do all of those things. But those things alone will never bring forth the kingdom that we desire. It's going to come through him when he, when he comes and, and deals with sin once for all. So, um, well, let's keep reading, and we'll pick it up in verse 6. Micah says, he's quoting their people now. That's why you see quotation marks. It says, do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. You descendants of Jacob, should it be said, does the Lord become impatient? Does he do such things, quote unquote? Do not my words do good to the one whose ways are upright? Lately, my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care, like men returning from battle. You drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. Get up, go away, for this is not your resting place, because it is defiled, it is ruined beyond all remedy. If a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, that would be just the prophet for this people. <laughs> okay, let's talk about what's going on here. Um, this wine and beer stuff, um, it basically, it's like basically if someone, the, the, the word prophet in other translation, it says preacher. And in that day, it's the same, same idea, the people who are teaching. And it's like if people came and they just gave beer and wine, basically their message was just comfort, relax, comfort, relax. And don't get me wrong, I hope that I say things that, that lead you to have comfort and, and to relax. And Micah certainly has comforting words. But it's not only that, is it? There's also quite a bit of challenge there. And he's like, at the time, that's all, that's all they're doing is just saying comfort and relax. And actually, it says Micah would get a little bit of pushback, wouldn't he? Verse 6. It says, do not prophesy, the prophets say. Uh, don't prophesy about these things. Don't say these things. Disgrace isn't going to overtake us. Um, it's, Isaiah and, and Jeremiah, other prophets, they talk about the same thing. Uh, Isaiah, they said to him, um, don't tell us of these visions. Tell us pleasant things, is what they said to Isaiah. And, um, and uh, Jeremiah's accusation against the teachers of the time is like, they all say peace, 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 but there's not peace. As in what's coming is not peace. And here what the people are saying specifically is, does the Lord become impatient? Micah, don't say these things, Micah. Don't talk about, don't talk about judgment. What are you saying, that God is impatient? And a lot of times, I'll hear things like that. Like, why are you talking like that? Don't you know about God's grace? Don't you know about God's love? Why are you talking about things like this? Things like judgment. Why are you talking about that? Um, and it's like this idea, like, does God become impatient? Once more, let's interpret this in view of the New Testament. Because there's a New Testament verse that speaks right to this very same attitude and just bear with me. It's not an easy one. And beloved, I tell you things that aren't easy because it's my responsibility to tell you things that aren't easy. Okay? Romans chapter 2, New Testament. 
Or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness, not knowing that his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your stubborn and unrepentant heart, you were storing up wrath for yourself on the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment is revealed. As in, you had certain people saying, I'm going to live the way I'm going to live, and it's going to be okay because I know God is good, because I know God is forgiving. Because I know God is good and because I know God is forgiving, I'm going to live the way I want to live. Beloved, that is not how the message of God's goodness and kindness is supposed to be received. It's supposed to be received by saying, God is good and kind, and he has a better plan for me, and he will surely forgive me, therefore, I'm going to turn to him. Turn to him. Don't use those words to comfort yourself when you're not doing what you can to turn to him and asking for the strength to live for him, asking for him to change your heart. Don't use that when you're continuing in your stubborn ways because that's what was happening with the people of old. They understood that God was a patient God. They knew a thing or two about God's grace, but they didn't turn to him. And ultimately, it became part of their destruction. It's often said that um, the role of the prophets is to um, comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comforted. As in, those who are afflicted by their state in life, namely the way that sin messes with all of us and the way that sin often overtakes all of us. The words of the prophet is to comfort those who are grieved by their sin, but it's also to afflict those who aren't, to afflict those who are living a life ignoring him and not actually feeling um, that sense of, I want to live for him and I want to be changed and I need his forgiveness. And so you hear things like that. Okay, this is the last passage I have for you today. Micah chapter 2, 12 to 13 says, I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. So here, right after speaking about his frustration with the people, suddenly he's talking about a king who is coming. Why? What's the connection? To answer that, I'm going to ask you a question. Maybe you don't know. Who is considered the last of the Old Testament prophets? And the answer is actually surprising. Uh, many theologians will say the last of the Old Testament prophets was someone in the New Testament. The last of the Old Testament prophets was John the Baptist. Nita actually read a prophecy about John the Baptist today. What was John the Baptist's message? Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Um, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And when Jesus arose, he preached the same thing verbatim. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And that's what Micah is saying here. There's a king. There's a king at hand. There's a kingdom at hand. And now I want to bring this to you today. He's saying the reason you should turn, the reason you should turn in your heart, it's not about the list. 
It's about something that happens in the heart. The reason you should turn in faith to the one who can change you, who can heal you, the reason you should do it is because the kingdom of God is at hand, meaning it's near. Well, how close? How close is it? You can taste it today. That's the message of the New Testament. That's what I spoke about last week. The Holy Spirit was given. They asked him, after he rose from the dead, they asked him, so now, so now is your kingdom going to come? And his answer was, well, on one hand, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons, meaning it's not for you to know when I'm going to return and when I'm going to restore my kingdom. But here's what I do want you to know. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The kingdom of God is at hand and it can be tasted today. How can the kingdom of God be tasted today? Through the giving of the Holy Spirit. I actually was thinking about this. And I was thinking, my oh my, I said a lot of hard things. I know I'm going to say a lot of hard things. I was thinking about last night. I know I'm going to say a lot of hard things tomorrow, and I also want to say some comforting things. But the way we broke this book up is I took three, two chapters. I think Jeff Day's got two chapters next week, and then Cheryl's got two chapters. And in these two chapters, there's not a lot of comforting words. I want to say some comforting things. And I got a text message from Barb, who leads our prayer team. And she was just like, this just came to me. The kingdom of God is not of words, but of power. The comfort I want to give you is not nice, pleasant words. It is. There's lots of nice, pleasant words that I'd love to give you, but it's more than that. It's power. The kingdom of God is not of words, but of power, and you receive power, and the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And the message of the prophets, the message of John the Baptist, and indeed the message of Jesus is, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight the way for him, meaning prepare your heart to receive him. When are you to receive him? When he returns? No. Today. Today. And maybe you're thinking, well, I've been a Christian for, for many years. That's fine. Acts chapter 4, after they had already received the Holy Spirit, the same people, they prayed again. Lord, stretch out your hands. Allow us to speak boldly. While you perform signs, wonders, miracles, healings in the name of Jesus, and what happened in Acts chapter 2 was repeated in Acts chapter 4. The place began to shake and blow. The Holy Spirit was given with power. Again, it's not a one-time thing. Prepare your hearts to receive the Lord. Today, it's my prayer for today. Okay, the kids are going to come back. I suppose maybe we have time for a question or so. And then I'm, uh, uh, we're going to bring this back because I'm going to connect it to what we're doing with communion. Okay? <laughs> All right, so if you have a question in the room, we have a microphone that's roaming around, so just raise your hand. And if not, you can text your number to the screen, the number on the, text your question to the number on the screen, and I'll get that on my phone. And uh, we'll be able to walk through a couple of questions. So... Can't see very well, but let's see. Um, 
okay. okay if there's no questions. I have, I have one question that's come in. Um, it says, when we're making decisions, how can we tell that whether we're just following our own desire, which might be short-sighted and prove to be stupid and wrong later on, or we're following God's instructions for us? How could we know that we're making the right decisions, or does it make any sense that when we do our best to pursue our biggest happiness and try to maximize our own interests, we're actually following God's instructions? Yeah, that's a great question. So yeah, if it's not really about a list, but instead it's about something that's happening on your heart, when you're trying to make a decision or it's something you want, how do you know if it's coming from the right heart? And here's, that's a great question because the question shows that you're asking the right question because don't assume that you know. Um, but uh, something that I do a lot, especially when I have something that I want, is you surrender it to God, meaning you say, God, I want to live for you. There's this thing I want. There's this thing on my mind. There's this thing that maybe I feel like I want to pursue. But God, if it's not from you, if it's not linked to your life working in me, if this isn't part of your plan, then take it away because I don't want my will at the end of the day. I want your will. So that's just kind of like a way of like surrendering it to God. Make sure you're talking to him. Making sure you're asking him for wisdom, asking him to guide you, living that life dependent on him and not just running ahead and assuming that, you know, your desire for yourself and your plan for yourself is, is necessarily the best thing. All right, here's another one. Why do we ask the Lord for strength for the day, yet I always end up exhausted at the end? Oh. <laughs> Tell us, Charlie. <laughs> that doesn't happen to me. I'm just kidding. <laughs> totally happens. Um, well, you know, uh, a verse that I think about is, what is it? Like, young men will run and grow weary, but, um, but those who... Those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will rise up on wings like eagles. Like he'll strength, he renew it. That's the word. He'll renew our strength. A lot of times I think that when I just feel like I'm out, like I don't know how I'm going to do. Uh, I'm, I don't know how I'm going to do tomorrow. It's like the Lord will renew your strength. And so, yeah, I feel it. I feel it. I think, too, we live in a world where rest is not really something that is like we we were like yeah we need to, to rest but um resting in the lord and resting do, doing true rest is really important and uh yeah i have one more question for us uh this will be our last question but you guys are already up here so god often rewarded people with riches aka job um or parables that included riches is that contrary to showing us that we need a correct heart posture and an abundant faith say that again he gave riches, so therefore... He's often uh, rewarded people with riches sure. or parables, including riches. Yep. And isn't that contrary to showing us that we need a correct heart posture and abundant faith? Um, I don't think it's contrary because ultimately riches, material, material promises are part of what God has promised for us. It gets problematic when people say that it's guaranteed in this lifetime. And if you just have enough faith, you can certainly get that promotion or you can certainly get that Porsche. That's when things get weird. But make no mistake, 
Uh, we will walk on streets of gold. Like, promises for material uh, blessing, that's part of what Jesus purchased for us. And the kingdom is a kingdom, a, a physical kingdom, not just a, a spiritual kingdom. It's not just spiritual rewards that we're promised. Um, all of that is promised in the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, let's pray and we'll continue.